Well, you guys ready for the word this morning? Hallelujah. Well, Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Father, as we come into your word this morning, I just pray that we're ready to receive it. Lord, that every distraction would fall away. Lord, that we would not be thinking about what's going on in our lives or even what we'll have for lunch, but instead we would be devoted to your word. Lord, that your word would have its way inside of each and every one of us. I ask that our hearts and our minds would be prepared to receive what you have for us and that we would continue to grow each and every single day. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to go ahead and continue on studying the book of Hebrews. Have you guys been enjoying it so far? You've been learning a lot? It's always amazing to me how much uh, more I learn as I begin to study and prepare to teach on this stuff. And uh, it just gets uh, better and better. And I keep learning more and more. And I have a great understanding every time. And the amazing part is, too, is, is you'll be studying this stuff and you'll read one part and you're like, oh, that's what it meant in a different letter. That's what it meant in a different book because you begin to see what's going on. The best way to, to understand the Bible is to read the Bible. You'll find out that you'll actually begin to see how stuff gets put together. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, as uh, Pastor Joseph has been ministering on uh, the last couple of weeks, he was looking at chapter 8, and you begin to see the author of the book of Hebrews begin to compare the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Specifically, that Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant. How many know that we are participators in a better covenant than what they had in the Old Covenant? You see, the, the thing about the Old Covenant, it was, it was, a, it was a, and we're going to see that today, it was an earthly representation of heavenly things. It was just a type and a shadow, but it couldn't measure to what God really wanted to do. It was essentially a, sco- a stopgap. And that's what the author is going to be showing today, is, is that, it, that, that, that it is really just an earthly representation of heavenly things. And he ended, you remember the last verse of the last chapter, it was him declaring the new covenant by necessity makes the old covenant obsolete. One of the things that you'll, you'll understand is that you can't serve in both the new covenant and the old covenant. You can't, you can't be beholden to the law and also be beholden to Jesus because the two are actually mutually exclusive. That's why Paul was so adamant about those Things He said, if you're going to be subject to one part of the law, you have to be subject to the entirety of the law. If you want to play the game of, of, of living under the law, then one single mess up renders you unworthy of God, unrighteous. And the reality is, is it's not a mess up that you're going to make in the future that you've already, that if you decide to, to follow the law, but you've already made it. You're already, the, the Bible says that none is righteous, no, not one. And that's the, the whole point of the new covenant because the truth is, is we were in a tough spot. There was no way for us to become righteous on our own. As we're going to see today, even the old covenant was just a band-aid on what God really wanted to do. It was a stopgap. It was a temporary measure until Jesus came and it didn't permanently fix any of us. But the old covenant is, is ready to vanish away and Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. So today as we begin to dive into it, you're going to see the author um, comparing different parts of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, how things were done in the Old Covenant and how they're done in the New Covenant and and how the Old Covenant fails in comparison to what Jesus did. 
And as we read this, oftentimes when you're reading letters, you need to think about what is the point that the author is trying to make? What is the purpose? The truth is, is we're going to get into some tough stuff here before long. And if you don't remember what the author is trying to make the point of, you can, you can come away with a different meaning. And, and truthfully, I, I remember in the past, there's parts that we're coming to, like the part that says that there's no longer a sacrifice for sin, that if you're not careful, you'll begin to think that you're without hope. But you remember what the point of this letter is, is to remind us is that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The new covenant is superior to the old. Jesus is superior to the old. And the truth is, is that that should give us hope, not ever make us afraid, amen? Amen. So let's go ahead and get started. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which we were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, and it is called the holy place. So these first several verses that we're going to look at today are, are a description of the regulations for worship in the Old Covenant. These were observed on the, the Old Covenant, the Levitical priesthood, the things that were going on, and, and really he's going to begin to describe the tabernacle. And he's going to use this to show us a point of comparison. How many know when you're trying to make an argument, sometimes it's, it's helpful to show the thing you're arguing against, to describe it. So that's what he's doing. The truth is, is that a lot of this letter is just him making an argument for the, the, the superiority of Jesus Christ. And this is going to show a point of comparison and ultimately show us that the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical practices and the Levitical rituals are actually uh, uh, inferior to what Jesus did. And they're ultimately inferior at making us uh, free and clean from sin. So even as he gets started, he begins to, to point this out. You might not see it, you might just read over it, but he begins to already point it out because he says that this is an earthly place of holiness. Already he's showing that the things that are down here are earthly. They're made by human hands. They're made by man. At that moment, it already becomes inferior to something that was designed and created by God. Amen? And he begins to describe this. What he's describing is the tabernacle, which is actually interesting to me. We'll talk about it in a moment. But he's describing the tabernacle, not the temple. Although they would have had a very similar layout. The, 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 the holy place, which is the first place you enter, and then it's separated by a large curtain, and then after that you would go into the holy of holies, which is the second section we'll talk about in a moment. The temple was very much set up the same way. You walk into the, the temple, and there's the, the holy place, and then right after that, separated once again by a large curtain, you'll remember that that curtain is the one that was ripped in two when, when uh, Jesus died on the cross because it was no longer needed. But he's describing the tabernacle with its first section here. And like I said, the biggest takeaway is that this is an earthly place. And you remember that we're, we're talking about this argument, which is better. We're going to see the difference between the earthly and the heavenly. We're contrasting the old covenant, which was earthly, and the new covenant, which was through Jesus, which is heavenly. And the tabernacle, like I said, is divided in these two parts. We've got the, the, inner, the, the first sanctuary and then the inner sanctuary or the holy of holies. But this first section, it has a few things inside of it which are pretty interesting. This is one of the cool things about studying this stuff. It's real easy to read over this stuff in your daily studies. So sometimes I would encourage you to slow down and start asking questions. 
the first place, the first section, there's a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. Has anybody ever wondered what the lampstand represents? What it was there for? How many know that when, when uh, the tabernacle was designed, God had very intricate details and plans for how it was to be designed? How things were going to go into it? Matter of fact, I, I'm always amazed when I look at pictures and drawings of it because apparently there are people way smarter than me that can read the scripture and what all's being said and come out with a picture because I can't even mentally picture it in my head as I'm trying to follow what's going on. But it was designed, uh, and I think that's why the scripture is so detailed, is God wanted us to know that it was actually important. It couldn't just be haphazard. It had to be done a certain way, but there are these things in the inner sanctuary. So first we have this lampstand. And the lampstand was used by the priests in their daily duties. One of the, 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 the most uh, obvious things that it did, and probably the most practical, was that it provided light for them to work in. How many know it's hard to, to do stuff when you can't see? So they needed some light. But this lampstand also represented the presence of God in that place. It wasn't just light. They could have brought in a lantern, but this was light, but also represented the presence of God. And the truthfulness of it is, is if you, you look, it's th this lampstand still uh, serves an important purpose in, in today's Jewish people. The menorah is what this thing represented. And then also we have the bread of presence. How many of you guys want to guess what the bread of presence represents? It also represents God's presence. Good guess. You guys are smart. The bread of presence represented God's presence, but also it is not only as presence, but it represented God's provision. How many know we serve a good God that takes care of us? One of the things that I always try to do when I pray um, is to follow that pattern that Jesus gave. And one of the first things he says you need to do is give thanks when you pray. So I always try to remember to give thanks for the things in life because the truth is, is if you look at your life, particularly if you live in this country, you've got it good. The poorest among us are richer than some of the richest in other parts of the world. And I just thank God for all the things that I have. And you, and you don't, some of the stuff we take so for granted that, that we think it's just a given. Like the fact that you have a wardrobe of clothes to wear or that you have a roof over your head or vehicles and a job and all those things. The truth is we're so blessed. God provides for us each and every single day. And that's what this bread was, is to remind the Israelites that, this, that God is a provider. And this bread was placed on the table once a week and then it was only eaten by the priests who could enter this section. And then he goes on continuing to describe the tabernacle in verses 3 through 4. It says, Behind the second curtain was a, was a second section called the Most Holy Place. Or you may have heard of it called the Holy of Holies, which I believe is how it more accurately translates. It's the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. So this holy of holies, this most holy place, is where the Ark of the Covenant was held. And you're going to notice something interesting about this because he starts describing what's in the Ark of the Covenant. He mentions the urn of manna and Aaron's staff. Did you guys know those were in the Ark of the Covenant? They're actually not anymore. Which is weird to me because somewhere along the road, they got lost. We don't even know where the Ark of the Covenant 
<laughs> but when we did, it still didn't have. You'll actually look, you can look, read about it in 1 Kings 8 9 or 2 Chronicles 5 10. When the ark is placed in the temple, it only contains the tablets. Now, I don't have any point to this. I just find it interesting that somewhere along the line this got lost. And it also brings up an interesting thing to me because the, the author is specifically speaking about the tabernacle and not the temple. And the temple is still around. Oh, we think. <laughs> it's hard to say when this was written. It might have happened after the temple was destroyed, but not likely the way that he speaks. But it, he's, why did he choose the tabernacle versus the temple? And, and uh, this is just speculation, but it might be because he was, he was talking about a time when the, the, the old covenant was actually put in place. He's, he's beckoning to a time where, where this was all actually starting and put in place and God made these different uh, rituals and rules that the priests had to follow. But the thing is, is that this second room behind the first symbolized something really important. And that was that sinful people could not reach a pure and righteous God. There was something in the way. The truth is, is there had to be separation between a sinful people and a holy God. Because sin doesn't survive in the presence of a holy God. If the people were to just walk into the presence of God, they would be destroyed. And this room, even more than the first, was more special because the high priest only entered this room once a year. This one time a year that he entered was to atone for the sins of the people of Israel, the unintentional sins of the people of Israel. And uh, he, he could only enter it once a year, and even if, if he entered at any other time, then he would be destroyed as well. And none of the other priests could enter into this room. Only the high priest could, like I said, once a year. There really was a separation between man and God before the new covenant came into place. I don't know if you recognize the privilege that we have to be able to speak to God face to face. In the Old Testament, anytime somebody thought they were in the presence of God, they began to tear their clothes expecting to die. But we have the ability to speak to God face to face every single day. One of the greatest proofs that you are holy after you believe in Jesus Christ is that he lives inside of you. Because the Spirit of God cannot take residence inside of you if you were not pure or you were not holy. Like I just said, sin cannot be in the presence of the holy. An unrighteous person cannot be in the presence of God and survive. But this new covenant take, took care of that. But he goes on describing the Ark of the Covenant. In verse 5 he says, Above it where's where the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot speak in greater detail. These cherubim that he's talking about, have you ever seen an image of the Ark of the Covenant? It's, it's, it's these cherubim that sit on the outside and overshadowed the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, like I said, the one time a year when the high priest would go in, he would sprinkle blood on the, on the mercy seat. And sins, the unintentional sins of the nation of Israel were forgiven because this blood being offered on this mercy seat. And the cherubim in this, in, 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 on the ark, they actually represented God's presence as well. And the manifestation of his glory. And then he finally finished describing that. He says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
What he's trying to say, in other words, is, is we don't have time to go over all the details of what's going on. What he's trying to say is, is look, the, the point of my argument is not to describe to you how the Levitical priesthood works and what's in the sanctuary. The truth is, anybody that was knowledgeable, that there was a, was a Jew, probably knew the gist of what was going on there anyway. But really, the point of his argument wasn't to describe the tabernacle. It was to make the point that the, the old covenant was inferior to the new. And a new covenant was coming in. And while it's true, like we just talked about everything in the covenant, what it represented, the, the lampstand and the bread and the, the, the ark was in there and we have the cherubim and what they represent. We talked about all this stuff and they had a, a great symbolism. But the thing is, is it was all symbolism. Every single thing there was made by human hands. Every single thing there was earthly and inferior to something that was created by God. And then in verse 6 and 7, he stops talking about the furnishings and the layout of the tabernacle, but starts talking about what was, was happening, the rituals and the rites and the practices that the priest did on a daily basis. In verse 6, he says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. You'll notice as he describes what's happening in there that this separation between the, the first section and the second section, the holy place and the holy of holies, is not only represented physically by a curtain, but also represented in how they performed their duties. He says that the first section, the priest went in there daily. The, the priest went into the, to the holy place daily and performed the ritual duties. But the second place could only be answered once a year. And then it says he never entered without blood. He says he goes in once a year, but not without taking blood. The truth is, if he went in without taking blood, then he would die. He had to, at least for a moment, be clean enough to stand in the presence of God. But there was a separation. The separation represented in their duties and the separations represented in the actual physical uh, build-out of the tabernacle. There's a separation between man and God. And the truth be told, the presence of God, to be in even the presence of God, even in these earthly and symbolic, created-by-man's-hand places, was limited. Only the high priest could go. Could you imagine? I don't know, probably because we do take it for granted, but could you imagine to know that you couldn't speak, you couldn't pray to God directly, what that would be like in your life? It would be so different. And the truth be told, there was even a concern for the high priest. If you look at Jewish history and what was going on, they actually tied a large rope around the waist of the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies just in case something didn't go right. Because here's the thing, the other priests, they couldn't go in there and get them. You would just have people falling down dead over and over and over trying to get in there. So they tied a large rope around his waist. In case something happened and he died, they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies. I don't know about you, but I'm liking this new covenant that I can have a relationship with God that I can stand in his presence without fear, 
Could you imagine that? Knowing that every time you were going to go speak to God, there was a chance that you wouldn't walk away from it. But there was a purpose for all of this stuff. In verse 8 uh, through 9, it says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. The truth is, when you think about this layout, even the first place, the holy place, could only be entered by priests. It's not like it was a place where the people could gather and worship God being a little bit closer. There was actually, not only was there a curtain that separated man from God, but there was a whole other section they couldn't even enter that separated them from God. And the fact that this outer section even existed was just evidence that God's uh, work of salvation was not complete. What he was doing for the people of Israel was incomplete, and this was proof of it. The blood of bulls and goats was only a temporary measure. And we just get to see this symbolic uh, representation of the gap between man and God. The divide between the earthly and the heavenly. And the fact that men wasn't allowed to be in the presence of God. From a literal perspective, the outer tent obscured and blocked the way into the intersection. If you think about it, just from a physical perspective, you had to go through one to get to the other. You couldn't even see into one and into the other. They were completely blocked. But symbolically, the tabernacle and all its rituals and all of its practices obscured and blocked men's direct access to God. And as long as that first section stands then regular men have no ability to enter into the presence of God. Regular men have no ability to stand in the Holy of Holies. I don't know about you guys, but I think that's a pretty raw deal. I like spending time with my God. Amen? And then it says, which is symbolic for this present age. This was a representation of the age before Jesus. When Jesus came, everything changes, but the present age before Jesus, and you remember, they're working this out right now, right? Jesus has gone to the cross. He's already made a way for us to enter into the new age, to the new covenant, but some people are still clinging to the old one. And some people don't understand, and that's what the author is trying to do, is, is, is teach them to make the argument that no, there is a better covenant, don't stay in this old one. As he continues on in the second part of verse 9, into verse 10 he says according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation See, that's the problem with the sacrifices the blood of bull and goats the sacrifices the priests were making now even even the blood applied to the mercy seat could never change the heart and conscience of men at best, they were being forgiven to that point. And the next sin, they were in a bad place again. At best, they were being forgiven to that point. Because the reality is, is that if those, those sacrifices covered all sin, then why would they have to keep doing it over and over and over again? The, the fact that they needed to be repeated proved that they weren't permanent. Amen? And even then they still left the worshiper feeling guilty 
they still felt the worshiper having a, a, an unclean conscience because the truth is, is nothing had changed inside of him. He was still a slave to sin. He was still in bondage to death. The worshiper, even though he was forgiven up to that point, nothing had changed in him. His conscience was not clean, and he was still in the same situation that he was before he went in there. While the sacrifice represented atonement for sin, it was only a band-aid. It was a temporary measure put in place. And the heart of man wasn't changed because the truth is these practices, they only dealt with, with uh, ceremonial, ceremonial cleanliness and purity. That's what he says. It only deals with various food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body. And it says these were imposed until the time of reformation. That's why these were, these were temporary in place to get them by. But the truth is, is that we need more than a Band-Aid. One of the things that, that I always talk about is that we are more than forgiven. Being forgiven is a good thing. How many of you know that? Jesus went to the cross. He gave his life. His blood cleanses us from all sins. That's a good thing. But the great news is, is he didn't leave it at that because he rose again in three days and gave us a brand new life, cleaning our conscience making us brand new, making sure that we're no longer a slave to sin, we're no longer a slave to death. And that's a massive difference. And that's what the writer goes on to say in verses 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now we have that contrast. Previously, it was a, a man that went into the Holy of Holies, bringing the blood of bulls and goats, atoning for the sin of the nation one time of year. But like I said, we needed more than that Band-Aid because that never really fixed anything. That just temporarily put off the problem. And we needed more than the Band-Aid. And in Christ, we got it because Jesus is our high priest. Not any man, but Jesus. And he himself went into the Holy of Holies that is not of this creation. He went into the uh, greater and more perfect tent, the Holy of Holies, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. It wasn't an earthly representation of the holy place. It was the holy place in the presence of God. And instead of taking the blood of something else, he gave his own blood. And it says right here, once for all. He did it one time for all sin, for each and every, single, every one of us. That means any sin that you've ever done was covered by Jesus. That means any sin that you'll do in the future has been covered by Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to go and sacrifice himself, put more blood on the altar every time someone sins or once a year. He did it once for all. His sacrifice did what the blood and bulls of goats could never do. And that was securing eternal redemption for you and I. The blood of bulls and, goat, bulls and goats had to be done over and over. They had to be sacrificed over and over. And I don't know about you guys, if you ever think about this stuff, they were sacrificing all the time, daily. I can't imagine. I mean, 
especially when I was younger, I finally learned later that they actually do eat. It's not like they're just sacrificing them and done. They get eaten. They get used. It's not like a, it's not like you just have piles of carcasses left over the side. But that's actually what I pictured in my head. I'm like, these things are getting killed all the time. What are they doing with them all? But that was the thing, is they had to be done over and over and over because they weren't perfect. They didn't. They were just an earthly representation of a heavenly thing. And then Jesus came. He went to the cross. He entered the Holy of Holies. He put his blood in the mercy seat to atone for you and I. As our high priest, a better high priest, as part of a better covenant. And he didn't just pay for our sins. He didn't just make sure that we forget. How many of that's a good thing? We need to be forgiven, amen? But it's more than that. We have the eternal redemption. But then in verse 13, he says, For if the blood of goats, blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of bulls and goats was just temporary. But what Jesus did was permanent. And like I said, forgiveness is good, but he did so much more than that. He didn't put a band-aid on the problem. He fixed the problem. You know, have you ever had a car that leaked a little bit of oil? Have you ever had a car that leaked oil? I've had a car that leaked oil. They're annoying. Don't get a car that leaks oil. But I remember when I was young, I didn't have any money. The Band-Aid was you put more oil in it. But how many know that it doesn't matter how much oil you put in, the next day you had to put more. The next day you had to put more. If you had a bad leak anyway, sometimes it was once a week or once a month. I had a car once. (laughs) One of my favorite cars, but me and Pontiacs don't get along. It was a Pontiac Le Mans. It was a 68 Le Mans. And... uh, my first Pontiac I ever had, I, I, I blew the head gaskets and, and messed up the motor, and so I sold it and got this one. It's a 68 Le Mans, and the same thing. I had issues uh, with the, the, it overheating, and eventually there came a point where I had to put oil or put water in the radiator every time I stopped because it was burning so much water. It wasn't leaking anywhere. I don't know where it was going, but I just know I had to keep doing it or it would overheat. But I had to keep doing it over and over because putting in water wasn't fixing the problem. Putting in oil doesn't fix If you want to fix the leak, you have to actually find the leak and fill it. And my Le Mans, I had to, well, I let somebody else, but I sold that car and never got another Pontiac again. But I, uh, not that I think Pontiacs are bad, we just don't get along. I hope you understand, me and Pontiacs. But they replaced the head gaskets and it was no longer, they fixed the problem. And that's what God did with his son. You see, the blood and bulls of goats, they were just band-aiding the problem. It didn't fix the problem of sin. It didn't fix the conscience of the worshiper. It didn't make them brand new. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, he's describing uh, uh, almost like two different men. He says, on one hand, I know the law of God is good, but I can't help but sin. Because sin has control over him. And that's what happened with Jesus. Before then, sure, they were being forgiven of their sins up until that point, but there was no way they could be free from sin. The Bible says that before Jesus, that you didn't have the option to not sin. It wasn't even possible because you were a slave to it. 
But here we find out how much more so will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works. This is a representation of us being made brand new. We're not only forgiven, but we're made clean. And it says, we purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Did you know before you were born again, you couldn't even serve God if you wanted to? There was no way to do it. You were, you were, you were actually somebody, something else's slave. Something else was your master. And even if you wanted to do the good thing, just like Paul was saying, I, I wanted to do good, but I couldn't. Sin had its way inside of me. But the sacrifice of Jesus was different. And it was, it was not just forgiveness, but it made us brand new. He fixes the problem of sin entirely. Now we're able to live the life that God wants us to live. We're able to serve the way God wants us to serve because there's nothing else that has a hold of us because what Jesus did was enough. It didn't just band-aid the problem, but it fixed it. And because we're new, we can now serve God with a clean conscience. Amen? Amen. Well, I hope you guys learned a little bit more today about this stuff. I'm so glad that he didn't just continue band-aiding the problem that it's finally fixed. I'm so glad that we can now speak to God face to face, stand before his throne without worry of dying or being reprimanded because of what his son did. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.